Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts. Thanks for joining us today for this episode of Out of the Question. We live in an age of critics. We have food critics, movie critics, fashion critics, talent critics, and within the church, critics of the Word of God. Critical analysis, sometimes referred to as higher analysis of Scripture, began in seminary circles and resulted in man following in Satan's footsteps, asking the question, Hath God really said? So, Charles, are we not called to analyze scripture and use our critical abilities to ascertain God's meaning in his word? Or is standing in judgment of God's word really an arrogant pretense for disobedience? Uh, the latter. <laughs> okay. I mean, yes, of course, we are called to be Bereans, as those folks were mentioned in the book of Acts, uh, diligent students of Scripture. But if we are being diligent students of Scripture, then we will follow the guidance of Scripture, which says and implies, indicates whatever words you want to use, that the foundation of all knowledge is revealed and given in God's Word, and that is the priority. That is the foundational presupposition of every thought, including how we study Scripture. So uh, the higher critics, the text criticism, as it's called, manifests in a lot of different ways. Obviously, we see it most notably in Bible translations. There's nothing wrong with having scripture in a language that we can understand, but people sometimes maybe they don't really understand that the issue of having new editions of the Bible goes far beyond being able to have an edition that doesn't have the vowels and the these in it, because especially in the New Testament, it bears the marks in many of the newer translations of the work of so-called higher critics whose founding presupposition in studying Scripture is, as I said, the latter of what you just mentioned, that Scripture is like everything else in the so-called natural world. It's part of an evolutionary process, so therefore it has to be understood and uh, from that standpoint. And that's what gives us the proliferation of new editions of the Bible, but especially the doctrinal compromise and the turning away from the worldview as, as expressed in scripture. You know, it's interesting because I just thought of when what you were saying, when I first came to faith, which was in the early 80s, there was a big discussion on pronouns and whether or not we should be referring to God as a he. And then there was a whole group of people who said we would, should refer to God as a she. And isn't it interesting that decades later, that error that started in this higher criticism circles ended up filtering down into society where now people don't know the difference between men and women, girls and boys, male and female. And yet to even have that conversation back then meant that the Bible could be viewed as not correct because it was just a man-made construct to use masculine pronouns. Yeah, there are other famous examples even earlier than the one you mentioned. When the first edition of the Revised Standard Version was released, I believe in the late 1940s, or early 1950s, it caused a major uproar because of some of the things that were done with this, the time-honored translations. Some of that was based on text criticism, 
but probably the, the most notable of which is the translation in Isaiah chapter 9 as the King James, the revised edition, the authorized revised version, uh, the so-called ASV, they all had, you know, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Well, when the RSV was released, it translated it, behold, a young maiden or a young woman shall conceive and bear a son. It was a footnote that that word could also be understood to mean virgin. But you see, the seed was planted that this is like any other, whether you're reading Plato or Socrates or any other ancient text, it's subject to critical analysis because, you know, it comes from a bygone age and we advance in our knowledge, et cetera, et cetera. Now, then there's the example that you gave, but I think one of the most ridiculous and noteworthy examples that really shows the serious problem as insofar as we're talking about relating to scripture and text criticism specifically in uh, Paul, one of Paul's epistles, I forget exactly which one it is now. He's giving the qualifications of a deacon and he says literally in the Greek, he must be a man married to one wife or have only one wife or something like that. Well, in one of the newer translations, I'm not going to mention what it is. I mean, it's been out a number of years, but they had that translated. A deacon must be married only once. So there's no reference whatsoever to sex, but the text simply doesn't say married only once. It says husband to one wife. So these are examples of how modern ways of thinking have been brought to bear. And when I say modern, what we know today about text criticism, as it's called, the critical analysis of the text of scripture goes really back to the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Okay, so let's talk about the word analysis. When we analyze something, we break it into its component parts. And quite frankly, it's, it's a good thing. Like I use the example often when you're studying the human body, you study the circulatory system, you study the nervous system, you study the skeleton, the muscular systems. But nobody is just a muscular system. If you don't also have a circulatory system and a nervous system, you don't have a complete person. So is there a danger in deciding that we should even analyze something as opposed to just accepting it as it's written? That's a very good question, I think, because we do have some folks, for example, they believe that the King James Bible translation, the authorized version, is supreme above all others, and perhaps it is in some or maybe even many ways, but sometimes those kind of ways of thinking can be taken to what I would call extremes to where I've even heard one King James-only advocate say that the Greek text of Scripture should be corrected based on what the King James, not the Greek text of the King James, the so-called Texas Receptus, but the, the King James English Bible should be used to correct a Greek text. No, I think that analysis is important. I mean, one way that we come to understand Scripture as a whole is by we analyze the New Testament in light of the Older Testament and vice versa. I like the way Dr. Joe Moorcraft put it. He uh, he has a series of lectures called Interpreting the Bible Biblically, and I think that's a, a good way to think about it, is that our starting point should be Scripture and our end point should be Scripture in terms of how we analyze all these things. I mean, when the, the reference to the Bereans in the book of Acts about them being very studious students of Scripture, being more wise than anyone else. They weren't using presuppositions founded on atheism or natural theology, so-called, and they certainly weren't referring to what we would think of as modern theories of psychology and sociology and things of that nature. Okay, so that's analysis. So it's got its place. 
but because sinful man is approaching God's infallible word, we have to be cognizant of the fact that we can bring our own errors and shortcomings and sinfulness to it. So do you think that there's something wrong with the idea of critically thinking? And is that different than criticism? I think there is a difference, but I guess it depends on how we understand critical thinking. I hope our listeners won't be too disappointed or surprised that I quote Dr. Rushdooney. But he has, in the book Faith in Action, the multi-volume set that contain the Chalcedon reports from 1965-2004. He has a very interesting chapter from 1997, I think it was when it was originally published, on the received text, meaning the Textus Receptus, the Greek text behind the New Testament of, uh, of the, uh, the King James Bible and the New King James edition. He, he makes the point, he says, and I'm quoting here, the basic presuppositions of textual criticism are anti-theistic and assume a naturalistic and evolving world and history. This means that the writing of the biblical text, their transmission, and their histories are totally naturalistic and evolutionary. And so the Bible is thus in radical contradiction to its express nature and history. So critical analysis is fine, but what is at bottom? What is the groundwork of the, of the critical analysis? Is it, is it what he was referring to, the atheistic, anti-theistic evolutionary worldview, or is it the idea that this is God's holy and divine word. And he makes this point. He says it's no accident of history that the only works claiming infallibility are imitations of the Bible having arisen in the Christian era. And he mentions specifically the Quran and the Book of Mormon. You know, the scripture always warns us to walk the straight and narrow because wide is the path that leads to destruction. Yet we live in a time where education has been magnified. People are impressed with the letters after someone's name. And I think there's probably a pendulum swing. And at the furthest apart, we have, it needs somebody to tell us what to think. So I don't have to think because I'll just go listen to whatever the pastor says. And he must be right. Cause after all, he's the pastor as opposed to, I'm not going to believe anything that anybody says, unless I see it for myself, I understand it for myself. But that's not how we're told to approach scripture. As a matter of fact, Jesus said that to receive the kingdom, you had to receive it as a child. Well, how does a child receive knowledge of the world around him? Some people would say, well, through their senses. I mean, they can see and taste and smell things, but the senses are not a safeguard against making terrible mistakes and errors. So if I'm understanding your, your, your question, my answer would be from their parents you know, from whoever is teaching them about the world in which they live. And I think I'm correct in saying that for the child, the psychology behind being the child is that what mother and father are teaching me, I'm assuming is true. You know, so I I think that that is an interesting and and helpful analogy that you, you raised there. You use the word is true or the words is true. So we're talking about truth and the scripture not only purports to be God's word, it says it is, but Jesus Christ is identified as the truth. And so when we're talking about truth, we're talking about Jesus Christ. Do you think there's a problem because people have developed that there could be lots of different truth? 
So yeah, when you talk about Jesus, you're talking about Bible truth or theological truth, but that doesn't necessarily have to purport with mathematical truth or scientific or legal truth. Obviously, there are some people that think that. I think that's been, you know, we, you mentioned at the very, very beginning, referencing the Garden of Eden, hath God really said, and that's really the case with what you just referred to. Some people think that, well, I, I can think of uh, ministers who have said things like, you know, there's no such thing as Christian politics or Christian education or Christian science uh, with a small s, uh, Christian mathematics. You know, all these things are so-called neutral areas. The fact is that is a declaration of war against the biblical worldview. And a theistic worldview, regardless of who or what you posit as God, that there is no neutral ground. Everything unfolds from the foundation of what you believe is the fount of all knowledge and wisdom. And the fact is something like mathematics. Well, there are plenty of mathematicians, I suppose, and physicists who are proud atheists. And that doesn't mean to say that they can't, you know, add one plus one equals two and even stuff more elaborate. But the problem is there's no justification for the knowledge that they have. It works on paper, but that's not because of their atheism or their rejection of the God of Scripture, Yahweh, the true God. It works because there is a true God. And so they are, to use Van Til's phrase, they're working with borrowed capital. And at at a certain point, it, it reduces itself into absurdity when because there is no foundational justification except absurdity or falsehood, it only can carry you so far. Now, in that in that being carried so far, there can be some impressive things that go on. But to quote Dr. Rush Dooney again, he says uh, some of these things survive all the errors because the premise is accepted. Well, what is the premise? There is no God, or there are different types of God, different avenues to different gods, however, however it may be. People purport to be doing all kinds of things without reference whatsoever to the God of Holy Scripture. But again, they are doing so outside the boundaries of his truth, but that will carry them only so far. And you have uh, the 20th century was the media century in the sense that we suddenly had the ability to not only communicate with people close at hand, we could communicate with people far away. There were pictures to go along with it. And with it came this approach to life of marketing, advertising, and persuading. And I think modern professing believers think that their goal in evangelism is persuasion, that what we're going to do is persuade somebody to think like we think or think like the Bible thinks. And I don't think that that's really how Jesus did it. Jesus didn't try to persuade. He called people to repentance and obedience, as did John the Baptist, as did the prophets before them. So do you think this critical idea that we can stand in judgment of Scripture in terms of God's commandments and such comes from the fact that all of us have been born into a time of marketing and advertising where we think we just have to change people's minds. I think that's a good example of how humanistic culture influences how Christians think, even though some may claim that they do only believe Scripture, but the cultural rot seeps in from various directions. And maybe without even intending to do something like that, they end up doing the very things we're talking about. And and I, I think it's maybe we can talk about this a little bit more later, but 
I think it's important to put out on the table right now. We're not, at least I'm not just not talking about uh, people who are confessedly atheistic or humanistic or reject the worldview of scripture, because we find something similar to this among especially evangelical Christian types to where the starting point of what they think scripture says, I mean, they're reading scripture, they want to study scripture, but it's how it makes them feel. I, I feel that it means this, or the Lord impressed on my heart that it probably should be this way. I think that, too, is a problem in a little different area, but it, it amounts to, I, I think, the same thing, is that we're sitting in judgment on Scripture rather than letting Scripture you know, speak for itself and judge for itself. Let me just throw a question at you. You've been involved in mentoring others, especially women, and I'm sure you have had more than a few occasions of dealing with folks in your mentoring process, in your classes. I'm sure many of them come as believers and maybe even with a, a firm knowledge of scripture, but I'm sure there are a few who don't. I mean, have you seen this sort of thing in your work? Well, actually, I, most people who attend my classes or have asked me for mentorship know that they're believers, know that they believe the Bible, and then they start studying things like Institutes of Biblical Law or other of Dr. Rush Juni's books. And where he's best is getting under your skin and irritating you enough to realize is my confession the same as my profession? And I've had many a woman say to me, I thought I was a Christian <laughs> and I was, you know, I, I was going to church. I was doing everything else, but somewhere along the line, I realized that I was at war with God as opposed to in submission to God. So I think it's probably very prevalent within the church at large, especially because of how people have been taught and the paradigms that have been imposed on them. I mean, I started off by talking about how we're critics of all these different things and how as a food critic, I'll decide to go to this restaurant or as opposed to that one, or I'll give thumbs up to this movie as opposed to that. Don't we, when we embrace this idea that we've chosen God rather than God has chosen us, that we then feel that we are in a position to be critics of God? After all, something told me that I should choose him. What happens if I don't like some of the bargain? Yeah, I think what you just described, where people come to the realization that I've been at war with God, I think that's part of this, this process. There are a lot of people who don't realize that. And so they may think they are doing good things in terms of studying scripture. But in the final analysis, it's God's word, as he's revealed himself in scripture, is being made subservient to their impressions, the things they've always heard, this, that, and the other. And there, there are a variety of places in, in talking about people who aspire or claim to be Christian where these things come to the surface in, in very dramatic ways, for example. I'm thinking about this just because it's. I've been teaching about it and doing some research on it for a sermon that I'm preparing. The subject, for example, of predestination and election. You know, when you explain what the Bible teaches in numerous places, where if, if the words themselves aren't directly used, for example, by Paul in Ephesians, then the concepts are all over the place. And you explain that to people, and they say, okay, well, I, I appreciate that because I understand that God predestines everything that he foresees is going to happen. And that's a convenient way to explain away the absolute sovereignty of God over all of his creation. Because as you know, if God just simply looks down the corridors of time and, and foresees everything that's going to happen and that whatever he foresees is going to happen, that's what he predestines. Well, <laughs> that's simply not predestination. But that's the way some people prefer to, to think of it because it doesn't challenge the pretended authority of man. And it's funny that you should say that because I remember one time when my son was very young, we were at 
we're in a very tall building at a doctor's appointment and we could look out and we could see from the ninth story that these two cars were going to crash. And he said, mommy, they're going to crash. And they did. And I said, so you could see that ahead of time. That's foreknowledge. Mm-hmm. But it's very different than predestination, which said that there was no way they were ever not going to crash. Right. And that's a very hard thing to swallow, as you pointed out, if you're going to try to market God to other people, let alone to yourself. Yeah, and that, that comes full circle to what you were just talking about, maybe in a, in, a, in a different way. But the issue of propaganda and marketing and advertising, we need to soft pedal this in order to get to that. But something else that Dr. Rastuni said in the article I referred to earlier it has to do with this very issue of us being consistent in what we say we believe and how we approach critical analysis and things of that nature. Because in referring to the critics of Holy Scripture and the humanistic scholars who are involved in that, he said, and I'm quoting him, he says, they are more consistent than their opponents because they are faithful to their views of God and of history. Yes. It's this whole idea of, is the way you view Scripture the way Scripture demands you view it? Or have you taken the intellectually lazy way and say, well, I just got to find what most people think. And if I'm with the majority, then I might be fine. But the problem with that is that since you don't know everything else about your teachers, you don't know what sins they struggle with. You don't know areas where they may be blinded to things that we have the situation where Jesus criticized the Pharisees and said, that they were making people twice as fit for hell than they were themselves because at least they had got, they knew that there were scriptures where when other people are just relying on what the experts say, they're not even necessarily basing it on truth. And I guess because I have been listening to one of your previous podcasts where you had an excellent guest who was pointing out the fact that the problem in many Christian circles is they, they don't read the Bible from, um, I believe he used the, the word worldviewistically or something like that. Right. People tend to read the Bible uh, as a, de- a devotional. And, and so that allows or creates, depending on your perspective, a situation to arise where people start off or they adopt a, a worldview totally contrary to the Bible. And then they expect that they are going to arrive at the same place the Bible arrives on some very crucial issues, if they're concerned at all. And by God's grace, they'll realize there is conflict between where they have arrived in terms of things like evolution, marriage, family, child rearing, all these other topics that are such big issues nowadays. It'll be blatantly obvious that there's a, a, a total difference. But you see, getting back to the issue of the biblical critics, they are right there to tell people who are concerned about such issues in a, in a bad way. Well, you know, the Bible comes to us from this primitive time and people didn't think this. And, they, you know, the Israelites were these nomads and they had a different type of lifestyle. So they had to be worried about family staying together and all this, that and the other. Well, that's a prime example of how you start with a worldview that totally contradictory to Scripture. And then you come back to the scriptures and analyze it or critically assess it from that standpoint when it should be the other way around. Exactly. And, and what I've discovered, and I've had many conversations with people who would never say that they're not believers, but because I think they've subtly adapted to this idea that we can criticize it, 
even if they've never studied, you know, the higher critics, is that they start needing God to justify positions to them. And I'll give you an example. So you talk to people about education, that the Bible says that parents are responsible and you shouldn't have your children in a school, which God's name can't be used other than as a foul word or curse word or something like that. And they want to say that God allows us each to interpret the Bible as the Holy Spirit leads us, as if the Holy Spirit's going to say one thing to person A, person B, person C, all different. And so then there's this scavenger hunt for verses. So I, I need a verse that's yeah. going to substantiate my point of view and hold it up. And this is true with people debating when, when life actually begins. Like, how do we actually know when it begins? You know, nobody's ever there for the fertilization part in terms of hearing it or seeing it. Obviously, people are there. But the point being is we need God to convince us and we're willing to find that special verse And this is where we've taken the circulatory system and the nervous system and separated them out. If you don't take God's word as a whole, from Genesis to Revelation, then what you're doing is you're destroying the body of what God is saying in the person of Christ in the word as revealed. And so now God has to convince us as opposed to, even if I don't understand it, this is what it says. So I need to accept it as opposed to having first understood it completely. And we see the the antithesis of that very thing played out every day in the news media and in our culture. Because as we've said numerous times in other podcasts, the having of an absolute voice of authority, that is the foundation of everything. And I mean, it could be questioned in one sense, but not without recognizing you're doing violence to the foundation of your knowledge, that is unavoidable. So today, for example, we see the gloves have come off, so to speak, in the media and certain segments of government attacking the ideas of Christians wanting the whole world to be Christianized, to become the disciples of Jesus Christ. Well, very few people nowadays question the voice that says, no, 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 that is absolutely wrong. We, we will not have this man rule over us. And so that, that's okay. Nobody wants to question, well, how, how dare you object to God's plan for reality? Because you've got competing gods, and most people have signed up with the wrong God. Now, to, to just come back for a moment to the subject in which we started out, I want to reference something that Dr. Rastuni said again, and talking about the subject of higher or biblical criticism. And the people who began to promote this idea that has led to the undermining of this very authority in the minds of God's people and others of the authority of Scripture, he says that biblical scholars of various church and theological backgrounds have been there, has been their insistence on implicitly beginning with the same world and life view as their opponent and then trying to reason their way to a radically different view. You know, that in a nutshell is the source of a lot of problem and confusion is that you know, we, we, we can't go to the bank and take the money out of the humanist bank account and then expect we can go spend it a lot of other places and we come up with something biblical. It's just not going to work that way. Well, the humanist bank account is much more like the national debt. Uh, there's yeah. no real money there. <laughs> That's right. But I just want to get back to a differentiation, and I'd appreciate your thoughts. We're not to take the scripture apart and take the parts we like and call those relevant and the parts that we now deem irrelevant. 
But the Bible does tell us to test God's word. So how is the testing of the word different than standing in judgment of it? I think it refers to just what I quoted from Dr. Rastuni and the things we've been saying from the beginning. What is the foundation? What is the motivation of testing the word? The Lord says, try me and prove me in in a variety of different contexts and places. And again, I refer to those Bereans who were constantly studying the scriptures to see if these things be so. The idea was and is that the whole framework of understanding and testing is the absolute authority of Holy Scripture and God's Word. You, you can't get away from having a central foundation of truth by which everything else is to be assessed. If you don't start somewhere, you don't ever get started. And wherever you start, in terms of a critical analysis of understanding humans, uh, the world around you, that's going to determine everything else. And so it's okay, for example, if, say, a person is a serious student of Scripture and a Bible-believing Christian, as we say, and they want to do an analysis. They want to critically analyze certain things in Scripture from that standpoint. Well, to my mind, that means that they, say, for example, take a book like, well, you and Martin Sobretti recently talked about the book of Leviticus. Okay, in order to really understand that and to analyze that in a biblical way, we don't start out by saying that this is part of a book called the Bible that is purely human in origin. We start out by saying this is part of the divinely inspired, inerrant word of God. But that doesn't mean that we can't read a book like Leviticus or Exodus or Romans or any other without putting it in its context. Where was this book written? Obviously, Leviticus was written to a specific group of people at a specific time to address specific needs. There's nothing wrong with saying that. But we recognize, because it is Holy Scripture, it goes far beyond just that immediate context. So I think, to my mind at least, that's an example of how something can be analyzed. But with the starting point being, it's not going to take me anywhere other than back to a reaffirmation of the absolute truth of God. And that's where we rely on the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Jesus promised he would lead us into all truth. So that has to be the presupposition that there is truth. And when the whole idea of proving or testing within the context of refining gold and silver, they withstand a lot of heat. And as the heat increases, what falls away is not what's gold and silver. That's the the dross. What remains is gold and silver. So if you believe going into it that there is a truth, but you don't yet understand what it is. And Charles, I run into this all the time as I start studies with women in institutes. Within the church, there are those who think you should baptize infants. There are those who say, no, you need a profession of faith. There are those who say children should take communion. And there are those who say, no, you need to have somebody who has reached the age of accountability. So they come in with that. And I tell them, I don't care what they think. Just study. And when you are sure that whichever position you hold is in obedience to God and you can reference his word to uphold your point of view, then that's your point of view. I don't have a dog in the fight. I have my own view of scripture. But the whole study of God's law isn't about imposing one person's view on another. It's helping a person realize that they need a hunger and thirst for God's truth, God's justice, God's righteousness. And invariably, Charles, there are people who come to an understanding, oh, I I was wrong on this. And then they get super critical on the people who think like they used to think. And I have to remind them, 
Don't you remember the process God took you through? As long as you're looking honestly for God's truth and you're not trying to switch places with God and say, okay, for this week, I'm going to be creator, savior, and redeemer. And next week, I'll give it back to you. I think we can trust the Holy Spirit to lead people who are really searching. And when um, Jesus was giving the Beatitudes, it was like, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It didn't mean that they were immediately satisfied but they didn't stop the pursuit until they were. Well, let me ask you this in light of what you just said and some of the issues that you brought forward. Whether you're teaching a group of people or you have people who come to you or in, in wherever it may be, a group of people are getting together and they say, okay, we, we want to, we haven't been really good students of scripture, but we understand some of the things that we heard in this Chalcedon podcast out of the question. So we want to really drill down here and do some serious Bible study and analysis. Mm -hmm. So my question is to you, do you think there is a place that people should make for what other people have studied scripture and what they have said and what they have written? In other words, does the history of the church, does the history of interpretation play into somebody analyzing scripture and understanding it correctly? Well, yes, but not everybody comes from the same place or with the same needs. Usually people have an issue. They have something they want to resolve. And they potentially were not oriented as students. I have a Wednesday group that's met now for a number of years. And there's one woman who is the kind of person who not only has read most of Rush Dooney, she reads all the footnotes, and she goes and buys the books and reads them that he referenced. (laughs) Now, I will tell you, that's not me. (laughs) That's not a description of me, but that's a description of her. And she brings tremendous insight to our discussion. And then there are others who have spent the major bulk of their Christian walk helping other people with immediate problems and referring them to the scripture and helping them use the scripture to answer their questions rather than I'm going to give you the answer. So you have to recognize, Charles, people come from different places and they're oriented differently. I would say that the people who sustain in being mentored or in attending classes, either with a group or individually, I always stress that don't read past what you can apply. So this isn't all about head knowledge. And so that you can someday be in a discussion and show everything that you know, it's got to be more in terms of God revealed this for us to apply it. So Yes, church history comes into it. If you don't know church history, you might be deceived into thinking we live in the worst times ever, and this is the great tribulation. When if you know about the Huguenots or you know about the early church and going to the Colosseum and or even people in other parts of the world today, it's very easy to get so consumed with what's happening to you that you don't have a broader look. So I would say for me, the real benchmark is, is someone looking for truth and are they ravenous to get it? If they're not, well, maybe someday they will, but it has to be self-motivated to say, I want to understand what God's word is saying. I don't know if that answered your question. (laughs) It certainly did. I think for myself anyway, I just wanted to put out to our listeners the fact that I understand as a pastor that none of us come to the scriptures. Let me rephrase that. When we do come to the scriptures to study, we are not the first people to do that. And so I think there's some value 
and considering what our forefathers have said or understood about some things, giving our ancestors the vote to some extent, as G.K. Chesterton put it. Uh, because I think of, for example, the doctrine of the Trinity. There's some people that reject that doctrine because they, they can't understand how anything is like that is taught in Scripture. There, there are numerous things like this, but the consensus of Christian belief is that once you cross a certain boundary, then you've gone outside the bounds of orthodox, small-o Christian belief. And I think there's some value in recognizing that we are not the first people to read the Bible. We must, we should read the Bible. We should analyze it. We should study it and see if these things be so. But let's also realize that there is a vast 2,000-year history of very godly men and theologians right up to the present time who have also read this, and we would do well to pay attention to what they said. Because, you know, I might be able to go out and get the manual in my uh, my car and figure out how I can do one or two things, but I'd much rather benefit from the wisdom of somebody who knows about this much better than I do and can guide me. Now, does that mean that, say, this person who's taught me how to, I don't know, something as elementary as change the oil in my car to repair some part of the engine, that they, they should have the authority to tell me which car, which type of car I should buy next. I might want to consider it. But once I know a little bit about the cars myself, then I, you know, with the knowledge that I have, can make my own understanding and analysis. And I, I don't know if there's an analogy there of what we're talking about, but okay. I think there is. It's the difference between scholarship and scholasticism. Okay. Scholarship is to study to be approved before God. In other words, God wants us to fear him and keep his commandments. We're supposed to do it knowledgeably because we're not going to do it accidentally. The whole scholastic movement sort of went into this then higher criticism, critical analysis by saying, we're so learned, we're so gifted that we're going to correct these errors or we're going to tell you what to take seriously and what not. We should be scholars of scripture and we do need the people who God has blessed as teachers, but even some of the best teachers didn't always agree with each other. That's why the book stops with us, that if we have this hunger and thirst, just think of it in terms of when you're really thirsty or you're really hungry, a lot of people maybe can hold off for a while and be patient, but after a while, they're focused on food and water. We've got to be that way. And if we don't have that, maybe we're spiritually dehydrated and we don't know it. And I think, too, in the times in which we find ourselves in these days, such issues that you brought up before, children taking communion or not communion, children, infants being baptized or not being baptized, those are debates that we can have at a later time. We're in a crisis of civilization at this stage. A worldview consensus solidly grounded in Holy Scripture is most needed in this time, and a consensus among Christians across the board on the importance of that worldview. Because if, if we have anything less than that, we're not going to be successful in this phase of the battle. Uh, you know, God's people will win the war. God's kingdom has triumphed and continues to triumph throughout history. But we're called to be faithful and, and deal with the battles that we're facing right now. And so if we are bringing anything to the study of Scripture that undermines its authority, that tells us, well, you know, maybe an issue like same-sex marriage or somebody who, what if somebody does think they're uh, female and not male and vice versa? Maybe we, no, no. no we, we start with the absolute foundation of what Scripture teaches. It has nothing to do with who gets baptized or doesn't. It has to do with the most fundamental issues relating to human life and who decides 
what that is and what that looks like. And that means that we have, as you know, you were referencing Vishal Malgawadi, we've got to get away from looking at the Bible as a devotional book, something yes. just between us and God, and a manual that the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. And in order to do that, no one's going to be a good warrior if they're there because they were drafted and they didn't really want to be there in the first place. I think that's the message of the account of Gideon. It's like, why do you want people fighting with you who are afraid? He managed to have of the group that weren't afraid and didn't want to leave. God paired him down to a very small group. And you have to be certain of the rightness of your cause. And I think that in that regard, we don't really have to worry with how many people are on our side. It's the quality of believer who says, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, meaning that our primary motivation is to see God's will enacted. I actually think we're at a point now where more people are getting that viewpoint, Charles, and maybe that's why we see these eruptions of opposition, blatant and open opposition, because this is the crux of the matter. Who is God? Whose word rules? Yeah, I was just going to ask you, you addressed it. There, I think, in a, in a little bit of a way that in terms of what we see happening around us today, Christians, and, and you know, we mean people who take the teachings of Holy Scripture seriously, enough to where they might want to debate and argue about who gets baptized and who doesn't, but uh, in terms of the other types of issues that we're addressing, in your experience and the people that you've interacted with, I mean, do you, see, do you come across people who are confessedly Christian, but they're having problems interacting with what's going on around them and trying to figure out how, what, what are we supposed to do here? How do we properly deal with this? Or do you see people who come up against the, the grave challenges that we're facing and their attitude may be well-intended as one more of compromise than strident biblical faithfulness? Well, I actually see a variety of people even more than you've mentioned. I've seen people who think that maybe what we need to do is not do anything and God will take care of it. And we don't have any real responsibility here. And then we have people who recognize that what they've been taught hasn't really equipped them for what they're facing now. But there's this other group of people, Charles, that I'm running into who are searching for truth, but somehow rather don't go to church. What is that all about, right? If Jesus Christ is truth, which is how he identifies himself, then we should be looking and going after those who are searching for truth, because what they're searching for, whom they're searching for is Jesus Christ. There are plenty of people who go to church, Rajuni would call them churchmen, who don't care about the truth. They don't want to know, wait a second, what you're being told here is incorrect because it's in violation of this part of God's word, or it's just based on lies. The paradigm that maybe we need to all assume is what is true. How many times in scripture are we told to think on that which is true as opposed to that which seems pious? We have a lot of people who can do the pious thing or think they can do the pious thing, but they're not really pursuing truth. And I think at this point, especially with what's happened in the past couple of years, I'm running into people who are looking for truth. And when you show them that Jesus Christ is truth, and they start interacting with that, they basically say, oh, this is what I thought all along. So the Holy Spirit's been guiding them. 
however God chooses to reveal himself, that's up to God. But I think we've got to recognize those people who have an appetite and hunger and thirst for the truth. Yeah, I think that we do as well. And I think it's our responsibility in whatever stations and callings the Lord has given us, pastor, mentor, husband, wife, mother, father, whatever, that in pointing people to that truth, we are pointing them more solidly in the direction of principled obedience to God's revealed word and away from, how can I put it, the the less wholesome aspects of piety and the devotional nature that Mr. Malgawadi referred to in his presentation on, on the podcast the other day. It boils down to who do we think changes people? So nope, even if you have lived out this idea that you accepted Christ, you wouldn't have even wanted to think in those terms unless the Holy Spirit had changed you in the first place. So this kind of goes back to what you were talking about, the sovereignty of God. In other words, we can all take a deep breath and recognize that God will not allow his word to come back to him void. And if we can be honestly approaching the scriptures, we're going to see that our witness, which is the word of God and the blood of Christ and the word of our own testimony is what impacts people not being clever, not being argumentative. It's just saying what we know to be true. Yeah. And in a lot of these contexts, whether people go to church or not, and by the way, that reminds me of something, and I'll just throw this out here. I saw someone advertising on a Facebook page who had purchased some land and had more than they needed in one sense. And so they were looking for some people to come and homestead. And he specifically said, I want people who are Christian, but not church people. <laughs> you know? I mean, I think I understood maybe sort of what he was talking about. But you know, the realization that we must be strident in our obedience to the word of God, not getting to a point where we're channeling our favorite conservative TV talk show host right. uh, instead of, or in, even in addition to the word of God, because our God has spoken to us definitively, absolutely truthfully about all areas of life. And that's where we should begin and end. Listeners, I hope we've given you something to think about. As always, if you want to get in touch with us, out of the question podcast at gmail.com is the way to do so. Thanks, Charles. Thank you, Andrew. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.